Finding the right cleat can be transformative. Believe me, I've worn plenty during my career. So getting the right balance is crucial. The cleat needs to feel good on your foot, but also feel good connecting with the ball. The New Balance Furon 7 Plus is built with both of those points in mind, offering overall comfort and precise striking in the game's fastest moments. Because, as I learned the hard way, because I didn't possess much of it, speed matters in soccer. That's why the Furon 7 Plus is built for accuracy and precision at rapid pace and is engineered specifically for use on firm ground. Why is this the ideal cleat, I hear you ask? Well, not to get too scientific, but the Furon 7 Plus offers a lightweight yet supportive hypo-knit with mesh lining upper construction and is paired with offset lacing for a truer strike of the ball, which is a long way of me saying that your game will immediately get better when these are on your feet. Learn more and purchase the Furon at NewBalance.com. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. New favorite podcast, your old favorite podcast at Soccer We Trust. I'm Jimmy Cruz, Trash Can, Conradino Conrad, also known as Jim, alongside only Hollywood Harry, Mr. Heath Pierce, because mm-hmm. Charlie Davies, and this isn't a joke, everybody. So anytime that he is on the podcast following this one, he apparently stayed an extra day in Manchester or over in London, or excuse me, in England. Because he got invited to have a sleepover. I'm not shitting you. A sleepover at Thierry Henry's house. (laughs) (laughs) That is no joke. Uh, So fair play. I would stay an extra day to go hang out with Thierry Henry as well. But sleeping over at his house, that is like like when you're, I don't know, fifth or sixth grade. We got to rank it though, because I've been on Thierry's planes before. I've been That's on, true. I've been on, I've been on Thierry's Airbus before, where it had a bedroom, it had a shower, it had two living rooms. Like at a certain point, I've been to Thierry's house. Uh, so, okay, so I, I so just I feel like maybe I've been. I don't know, dude. The sleepover though. That's, sleepover. that's there's that's intimacy you know like that you are going in through somebody's doors into like, their time me. you're changing into your sleep clothes like you are you are like at a certain point hanging out and i've been to Thierry's multiple times and we watched basketball but when the basketball game was over or a soccer game was over i would go home you know there was no like right. i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna hit the hay and uh <laughs> you know you wander off to your your, your bed so only to get up and have breakfast in the morning um, so it's, that is a big it's, one, Jimmy. I think that big, might, I mean, trump, I mean, uh, my experience. I guess the thought, I, that's a good point you bring up because the thought of Charlie Davies getting tucked in by Thierry Henry before he goes to bed is absolutely amazing. I hope he brought his Thierry Henry onesie pajamas <laughs> just to really seal the deal on that. All right. We have a great show for everybody. We have a lot to talk about as always, uh, UEFA president, uh, Alexander Seferin came out and said the Champions League final could be in the U.S. We'll get into that. We have Open Cup results, which I think is a tournament that needs more love and adoration, and we're going to give it its due. And uh, where it stands right now, round of 32, draw is a little later today, so we'll give you an update on that. Matt Crocker, who – what's up, Matt Crocker? Hopefully you'll come on the show here soon. Is the new sporting director. He had a press conference. I wanted to get in a couple of his thoughts, and and I had a conversation with a pal, Chip, who – just talking about develop, developing players. And because Matt Crocker has a history of that with England, I wanted to get your thoughts on that, Heath. And, uh, of course, we got some big games on the weekend to preview as well. So you want to get into – What's up? I said we love you, Chip. We do love Chip. Just wanted, every time Chip's name comes up. I don't even know him. I just want to say Well, I it's just you, a matter Chip, of time. You, you said it once, Jimmy. I saw you. I saw you. I saw on social media you took a picture with him. Um Somewhere yes, I watched I watched somewhere. the the yeah. Man City Arsenal game with Chip in New York City. I'm actually here at Stanford, Connecticut and in NYC because I'm filling in for Chuck. I'm on Morning Footy yeah. right now on the Golasso channel and I'll be Don't on say tomorrow. at 
let's not say at Stamford, Connecticut, because you're making it sound like you're at Stamford, like you're at a a a desk, like you're in Stamford, Connecticut. I'm in Stamford, Connecticut. Sorry, I you you I, had I, you, I, I you added it like for a while. You're like media. I'm at I'm at Stamford, <laughs> uh, Connecticut, not Bridge. Yeah, so uh, so sorry to interrupt. You're filling yeah, in for Stanford, Charlie. Connecticut. I'm not at the bridge. Okay, and and but I I am Chuck's stunt double. If you can see here on the YouTube's, mm-hmm. I have that written underneath me, because uh, yeah yeah, it's gonna be it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it, and I've got one more show tomorrow. So if you want to tune into the Glossa channel, it is free. Make sure you make that happen. Seven to nine a.m. You'll see this guy filling in for Chuck. And uh, shout out to everybody. Jimmy. They're working so hard. That the, the studio is amazing. Yeah. Quick, quick question, um, because, you know, we've seen it so far and, and Charlie's mentioned to us just the the, the hours involved um, coming from the West Coast. You're losing quite a bit of time. Has it been a little bit? of? Is it a rough, 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 rough go in the morning? I mean, no, I'm not going to lie, Jimmy. This is the freshest you've ever looked. Um, so I don't know how, but I'm assuming it's pretty tough to get up that early in the morning, considering that's essentially your wake up call would be when you'd go to bed on the West Coast. Uh, yes, nice my morning. my call time to show up in the studio is 5 a.m., 5.15 a.m. here, which is 2.15 okay. at home. So I'm a little weary when I walk in for the pre-production meeting. That said, I'm coming off a nap, so I know why I look fresh and why I'm glowing mm-hmm. and why I have a little... Okay, there you go. My yeah. Step. yeah, I had to come back after the show and just lay down. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm feeling good. But thanks for noticing. I appreciate that. Maybe it's hey, the lighting hey. as well here in this room. I don't know. Before we get any further, uh, life of Bry or life of Brees, uh, did Heath trade for that uh, Arteta jersey? Actually, this goes to my. I might. This might pull me back, Jimmy. Okay, pull you Terry, back. Terry, you know, took me back. Took me out to uh, Arsenal training. We had a good time. You know, we were hanging out, hung out with, uh, hung out with Pep. Uh, I'm not Pep. Um, Arsene Wenger. Uh, Arsene Wenger. Um, and then we went to a game. Uh, what they at the time called the North London Derby, and just so happened to uh, run into Mikel Arteta at some point during that week with Thierry. We were out on the field, hanging out in his box. Sol Campbell. We were just having a good old time. Yeah. And Arteta now, this, hooked me up this with is, his jersey. This is better than uh, this is better than a sleepover. Yeah. Keep going. It's better than a sleepover because now it's involving you know more people. So Arteta hooked me up with this this uh, this jersey after that that match, and I was actually really. Really grateful for that. So, yeah, I, I completely forgot this was there because of the tragedy yesterday that was Arsenal. But, yeah, it's on my wall, and it actually came through my connection to Thierry as well. So where are you that at with the, that one, Chuck? Huh? That, huh? Well, that's, I, that's, I, flex, I, that's my, that's that's my pajamas. <laughs> I go to Thierry's, I sleep in an Arteta jersey, okay? Oh, man. I don't know how Thierry would feel about you sleeping in an Arteta <laughs> jersey at his I don't house. know how I would feel sleeping in an Arteta jersey, period. <laughs> but, like, I just got to keep on flexing because I'm really insecure right now about Charlie's experience, you know? I just, I, I just want to say that Arsenal didn't lose the league yesterday against Man City. I feel like when you see that game on the schedule, yeah. no matter even if they have Erling Holland or not, if Pep's in charge and they've got the team that they have, that was always going to be one that you don't count on they, getting points. It's the three no, games they, prior to that. That's all I want to say about that. I was on I was on House of Champions yesterday, and um, the the it, it is worth saying. And and Nigel Rio Coker said this: Arsenal are the second best team in the Premier League, right? And even though they were in first place, you're no one's better than Man City. That's the reality. And they had enough points throughout the year to basically lose twice to to Man City, which they between February and now. Uh, should have happened and they should have still been able to run away with it. It was the last three draws in a row that yeah, cost them yeah, six yeah. points that cost them all these things. And that's, that's where they lost it. Yeah. They were bound to lose that game against the team who is in the best form. I've seen them in a really long time and at home with one of the best home forms I've seen ever. Um, and so, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, and, and you can't discount what Erling Holland brings to the team, especially if he, that hold up play on the first goal was fantastic, which is going to lead us to this comment, actually. And Max, in Rocker, football we trust, mate. Welcome to in football we trust. <laughs> about Fuller and Balogun and whether he can get him recruited here for the U.S. I want to get into that, but and we will. I think we're going to save that for after uh, our first commercial. But I did want to. I feel like this made headlines, and I wanted to get your thoughts on Alexander Seferin, the UEFA president, saying that the mm-hmm. Champions League final, he'd like to have it in the U.S. in 2026, and. Nothing like uh, good old Alexander Seferin to trigger European fans. So, like, this is an outrage. It's UEFA. It's European clubs. They should play in Europe. And I totally get that. Actually, I just like to have a really bad uh, impression of them. But I think it's all for marketing purposes. That is the World Cup. It's going to be, what, months before the or like a month before the World Cup starts, mm-hmm. the Champions League final. And it is peak marketability for that particular competition. And, and, and I think that that would be really smart marketing. I don't think he said we do it every single year. It just happened to be that year 
And I think strategically it makes a lot of sense. Though I don't think they should do it, but I understand why they would consider it. So I just wanted to uh, to to get your thoughts and if you agree with me. Yeah, I mean we're continuing to see this, right? It's never going to stop. The U.S. is is the destination where they uh, they can they can um, make the most money. And I actually found I I listened to that interview and and one thing that he did say about that, which is like they distribute ninety seven percent of the money that comes in gets redistributed. And it's not just sit, they're not just sitting on that, which I think is an important factor, which he said nobody cares about. Everybody just attacks them anyway as, as being evil for going for money. And they're saying, well, <laughs> we'd like to make a lot more money so we can redistribute a lot more money. You're going to make a lot more money if you come to the U.S. And if you do it right in that right with the 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 uh, the tailwinds of of the World Cup. So I don't love it. Um, uh at all, but I also didn't love VAR. And then now VAR is like, you know, saved my team some points throughout the years. And so well, like, I, I think, I think, yeah, change is, is, is part of all that. I'm glad that you brought up VAR because that is the, the next topic that he had discussed in this interview with men and blazers. And I do want to say why in the hell did a UEFA president decide to sit down with uh, men and blazers uh, uh, with, with all due respect. That's just not what I go to them for. I'm not looking to them for the hardcore, you know, journalism, that uh, so fair play to to the people behind the scenes that I'm sure we're working hard to make that happen. But there was a, a VAR and handball rule answer that he had about how he just thinks it's confusing. He doesn't know what's happening. He's frustrated by the lack of consistency in the rules. I'm paraphrasing here, but that's ultimately the gist. And I agree with him. And I think that's something that frustrated me as a player. And so I wanted to maybe get your thoughts on the handball handball rule in general. And, and, and I would say this for everybody listening and, and give us a follow on Twitter at ISWTPod if you want to chime in on this particular issue. If you want to chime in on anything else, uh, please do that and drop us a follow. We'd love that. But there's when I was playing, that's what killed me the most. And where I start to run my mouth a little bit more to a referee, whether I was captain or not, like you call a game tight. Okay, if you're going to call a game tight, I think us as players, no problem. But you have to call that game the same way the rest of the way. You can't all of a sudden, 20 minutes later, start to get a little loose on what you're calling, you know. Or, oh, look at uh, Clint Dempsey, you know. Well, we don't want to give him a card, you know, because then he'll get thrown out because he throws a lot of elbows during a game or whatever. You know, like, you just, you can't make special. And that's that's where I would get pissed as a player. Like, dude, you're you're changing the rules in the middle. And that, and you set the tone with some different things. And VAR, and hand, I guess when I think about handball rules in particular, they're just being called so radically different, sometimes in the same league. And that kind of frustrates me as well. So so I hope that they do change some of these rules and start to be, make VAR and, hand, and the handball rule in particular a little bit more efficient. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's um, Actually, you know, Jimmy, the thing that I would like to see about uh, VAR the most uh, that that's being a crutch now, that I feel bad for defenders on is the old offside flag being left down. The amount of oh, extra that's the sprints, worst, dude. The amount of extra sprints you got to do, and 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 I've been seeing it a lot this year, especially in in uh, you know being at the vantage point that I've been in, in in some of these MLS games, is like you're talking about five six yards offside, and now your defenders and you and I know mm-hmm. that jog with your hand up to a full on bolt, sprint. yeah, sprint is a finite resource in a game over a game, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you do that, and I'm not saying it happens a lot, but if you do that two, three times a game, that's a lot of half-field sprints that you're using uh, in that time. And I know some of them are close. You got to play it out. You got to play to the whistle. And we knew, learn all the things at a very young age. But you're almost unrewarded for being good at holding your lines or, or rewarded right, for, for holding right. your lines in the right way that I just see a lot of them just like panicking and running uh, ultimately to see it you know, a flag go up and then the coach, I think, uh, the coach on that sideline is like freaking out being like, dude, it's so clear. Why are you doing this? Right. Why are right. You, why, like, do you not, I know you're being instructed to keep it down, but for the sake of all of this, put your flag up. Like you can tell it's offside. So, so what's interesting is there's a physical component too, what you're talking about, right? You have a finite resource and how many sprints you can do at a high speed. But I also think you're tiptoeing into the emotional side for us as players, which now kind of ties into what I was saying before. If all of a sudden the, you know, you're doing these extra sprints and like just throw up your your flag, whatever it may be, because those guys get frustrated with that, it just lends itself to having more emotion during the game, which I think becomes harder for a referee to control later on when that starts to accumulate. So mm-hmm. 
I think that raising the flag, and I remember, I remember being in the Gold Cup in 2005 with the U.S., and that rule was in place. And I remember we held a pretty high line, and under Bruce, and and this, and I remember it was either against Costa Rica or Jamaica, and they, I would hold the guy off clearly by a couple of yards, like you're talking about, and I'd still have to go sprint to track him down just in case, you know. And so, because you didn't want to be the player that didn't follow through and was, you know, the big donkey in the back that just had his arm up and wasn't actually tracking the play just in case. So. So I, I'm glad they changed the rule after that so you didn't have to do that extra running, but now it's back, and I think it sucks, and I agree with you, and I hope that that's another rule that changes as well. All right, one more thing from Alexander Seferin. He said something about a salary cap, and I bring this one up because there's really only one league in the world, one soccer league in the world that does that, and that is Major League Soccer. And you have to think that the owners around the world are like, hey, I kind of like that idea. And I know it's not isolated to us. I know all, all the American sports have it, but the salary cap is something that Seferin wants to potentially bring in. And apparently he's got, according to him, unanimous buy-in from, he's, I think, billionaires of all. He, he like named them the oil money, the state money. It's crazy. I'm like, what is this guy doing? But but he started to define all these, these rich guys and how they'd all be interested in potentially putting a salary cap in place. Which I think, and uh, we saw Mahita um, the Malongo, who is the, the rep for the PFA in, in England, come out and say, the players are never going to agree to that. And, and I agree with him because you have these owners that now want to have all these players play in multiple competitions. They're, I mean, some of these guys at the top clubs are averaging a game every couple of days. And hey, by the way, we're gonna just going to we're going to we're going to put a salary cap in place. So so you get less money. I just don't know where they're going to find the sweet well, spot on that. So so good luck with that, Mr. Alexander. Yeah, Sheffern. I mean, the hard part is, again, and, and he says this in, in the interview is that. Manchester United, who have global revenue at an insane level, he's saying like the first salary cap is seventy percent of your 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 revenue can be spent on transfers and player and salaries, right? Of players. Hmm. Well, that's going to be it's it's basically creating the business of globalization of your business because the more revenue you bring in, the more you can spend, and I I do think that as a parameter is 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 a smart one, is a good one. However. That compared to what, say, Leeds are going to be able to do, and I, no disrespect to Leeds because they're a big, they're a massive club traditionally, but like where they're at now, based on revenue, is is a really troubling figure or or delta, right? I do think that's a good first step, but then you have to create the next steps. If the idea is, if the idea is financial sustainability of the future of the sport, that's very different than parity, right? Parity is like giving everybody. The somewhat of the same means of which they com can compete. Financial sustain sustainability to avoid like bankruptcy and all the like things that we've seen from teams that go from like high highs to doing shady things to being dropped or points deducted and all those things that happen. That's a different conversation and I think a harder one to, to justify because you're still sort of rewarding 100 years of, of, of growth um, in the way that they've had to and sort of billionaire backing versus versus what we see now for clubs that are just have already been trying to be sustainable because they can't handle the swings. Yeah. So Kai makes a good point in the comments who says Man City's not going <laughs> to join in on having the same amount of spend as a Bournemouth. You know, they're just it's just not going to happen. And, 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 and I agree with him. Here's the, the MLS tie in. It's. This is what I think we want for the league. We want the handcuffs to come off because there are some clubs that do have those types of ambitions. Now, a lot of owners can come in and say, oh, yeah, 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 we, we'll want to spend. But then when they have that opportunity, they don't always take it. So You're talking about MLS? MLS? Yeah, I'm talking about MLS yeah. now. Yeah. So, so you know, maybe there are some mechanisms that, that MLS have shown, the designated player rule, where that can also be put in place and all that. But for, for these European clubs. But I, I, yeah, I agree with you that there is a distinction between financial sustainability and parity. Yeah. And, and by, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, but I think that's where MLS is kind of evolved into. They've grown the foundation and now I think they got to figure out a way to kind of loosen the purse strings so that there can be that. Now that might lend itself, Keith, as we've seen to, to some clubs that are really kind of taking this opportunity. And, and I know we're going to get into the CONCACAF Champions League a little later, but LAFC and Philadelphia Union are, Two good examples, I think, of, of clubs that have ambition but are building it in different ways. Philadelphia Union clearly going through the youth route and, and selling those players on and, and still making good signings, of course. Mm -hmm. And LAFC maybe splashing a little bit more uh, to get some big names in there. And then uh, and, and that's how they're kind of supplying it. I think they're 
youth academy is going to be very good moving forward. And, and Todd Saldana runs that. So shout out to Todd. But, but I, I, yeah, it's interesting. And I wonder if those, if those two clubs in particular had the handcuffs come off, what they would look like. And, and is that a league that we want in MLS, just hypothetically speaking, where it's just the same three or four teams that are kind of running point and winning the league every year. And I don't know if everybody would say that, Oh yes, that's what we want. So I'm kind of curious no. to, yeah. to, uh, what, I don't what, know if you, your thoughts on that. No, 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 I, I agree. I think, I think in a way they probably feel like the handcuffs are already off, right? Philosophically, the Philadelphia Union are going to go find that diamond in the rough one million transfer fee player that fits within their system, and they're going to go and and develop the re- a number of those players to fit within their system, sell and create sustainability. I think if you were to ask the union ownership group, and maybe it'd be different throughout the the, the ownership group or the coaching staff, they would want. If, if I'm if I'm the league, I would say we open this up because we need to build national products. Right? Mm-hmm. I need a reason to love or hate uh, LAFC. I don't like Manchester City, but I'll watch them play every single week because it's entertaining, yeah, sure, right? Sure. They spent the yeah. money, they invested on it. Maybe I don't like the fact that it's it's you know you have ties to to sovereign funds and you have the, the spending that they have and all those types of things. Um, but I love them, and I'm an Arsenal fan. I mean, <laughs> but 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 entertainment wise, I'll watch them because like that's sure. a product I want to watch, right? But right. I'm not going to buy a jersey. I'm not going to support them in other ways. But I'll watch. I'll pay for a subscription so I can watch that. Um, mm-hmm. And so I do think you need to build a national product in the same way that baseball has. With you, you, you obviously have these, you know, the Yankees, Red Sox. You have all these reasons to love or hate somebody. At least historically, growing up, right? You learn about these stories. I think the next phase is to build that national product so that you can have some some heroes and and some enemies and 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 the infamy that comes with all of that. The overperforming, the underperforming, the dominance, the 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 failures that would come with overspending. And I think the Philadelphia Union is somebody that would look at that and go, Hey, actually. I think that uh, uh, we can compete still without having to spend like them. Let them spend. Let them spend $20 million on each player. Uh, but we still think that we can put out a product that's competitive, that makes our fans happy, that comes to the stadium, something they're proud of with their city and their community sure. that still gives them reason to come week in and week out, year after year, but gives us something sustainable a- as a model. So I, 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 like the, I, I like the idea of that. Obviously, those mechanisms already exist with like you know allocation money and all these things that are sort of manipulating salary caps uh, and how you use them. But I think we could go, I think we are on the edge of going a big step further that can be great for consumers as well as clubs. Well, as Chelsea has proven this season, money can't solve all of your problems. All right, we're going to take our first break of In Soccer We Trust. When we come back, we're going to talk about this Matt Crocker press conference as he's unveiled to the public in his new role as sporting director of the U.S. Men's National Team. And we'll get into some Open Cup stuff as well. So do not go anywhere. All right, welcome back to In Soccer We Trust. We want to remind everybody that this show, this podcast is more than a YouTube first podcast. It's a community. Now you guys can rep that community with official In Soccer We Trust gear only found on the Paramount shop. Discover t-shirts, mugs, sweatpants, laser engraved, pint glasses, hats, water bottles, and Charlie Davies's onesie Thierry Henry pajamas. He's staying with Thierry Henry tonight if you don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And so much more. So that's pretty cool. And uh, we highly encourage you guys to go rock some gear and uh, show that you're an in soccer. We trust her. That's what we want. I'm Jimmy Conrad alongside Heath Pierce. We are getting into the Matt Crocker press conference. Matt was just announced as a sporting director after a three-month search after Ernie Stewart had stepped down from the role to to, uh, take on a similar role with PSV Eindhoven in the Eredivisie in Holland. And Matt Crocker comes over, 48-year-old from Wales, from his role at Southampton where he has been kind of overseeing a lot of things, both on the men's and women's side. And and he came from the English FA prior to that, where he was overseeing all the youth stuff there and and working with Gareth Southgate and how they could build kind of an identity for England after a few wayward uh, international tournaments. He was also at Southampton prior to that as an academy director from 2006 to 2013. So I really like his CV, his resume in the youth space, Heath Pierce. And so... I went back and looked at uh, some of the teams, youth teams that had success for England. So the U-17s did very, very well. They won the U-17 World Cup for England under his uh, time in charge, the English FA. Those teams had Phil Foden, Jaden Sancho, Emile Smith-Rowe, Callum Hudson-Odoi, Connor Gallagher, Mark So, So that's the U-17 team. The U-19 team that won the Euros had Aaron Ramsdale, Mason Mount, Reese James were kind of like the big names that stood out there. So, so he's had some players that have gone on to have some, some pretty tremendous success, both club 
the club level and internationally. Um, but um, I hope that can translate to us. But I think that type of role from a, a youth perspective takes time. Now, Heath, I'm going to keep going here because during this press conference, he had made mention that he was one of those kids or, or younger people that came over to the States during the summer to run soccer camps. And, and these are the types of people at times that I make fun of because it feels like we are so thirsty over here to get accepted by people that have a British accent that uh, even if they have no background, they come over for the summer and they're coaching our kids, but they don't really actually know. They just have the accent. So everybody's like, oh, well, they, they, they grew up in England, so they clearly know the game, you know? And so I think it's funny that he actually did that. And now he's the sporting director for, our, for our, both our men's and women's programs. But uh, obviously, he's got a pretty decorated CV. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I do think we're we're nearly. Pa- I mean, I don't think we're nearly past that because if you go into any of these youth clubs, you're like, oh yeah, there they are, <laughs> British accents, <laughs> telling you to get the ball on the pitch and play. Um, get stuck in. But yeah, I I think there's still a lot. I mean, obviously there was the the, the whole um, GPS had that whole scandal around visas uh, when they were expanding their empire uh around the u.s of like these visa fraud basically being able to bring all these coaches over because it is a sell like when it comes down to youth sports it's a selling point right if i give you ten thousand dollars a year what do i get okay i get this coach that has these badges i get two trainings a week i get a skill session i get to do this gym thing i get these free plays on the weekends and then you know and then i get these these tournaments and then you you're talking to the other club who's telling you you know something similar but different and so it is part of uh, the marketing pitch and play or employ that 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 you're going after these coaches. I also think that we we need more educated coaches in the U.S. Right? I think yeah, the accessibility of that is still the barrier to entry is high, and I think the accessibility uh, is, is still really difficult. There's obviously a lot of grassroots um, licensing available with U.S. Soccer now online to be able to learn just simple basics to get you off the ground. But I uh, culturally, I think we need to continue to develop that, and that might be the biggest jump that we need in order to win a World Cup someday right is is the coaching like are we getting enough quality coaching at a young enough level that are doing it for the right reasons that aren't doing it so that jimmy can live vicariously through through all of us you know to win another championship uh with his with his jv team and screaming at everybody <laughs> and telling them listen not i didn't make it didn't, or are we, we nurturing and okay, yeah oh win. no oh we no didn't dude listen have i gotten into this because it's still, no, it's still like okay so we we played 32 halves Okay, of, of soccer through our 16 league games. We lost mm-hmm. four of those halves. We lost four out of 32 halves. And we got fourth. <laughs> that just speaks to the quality of the, this, this particular JV. Oh, anyway, I agree with you. I think that the coaching does suffer. Uh, I know that there's some clubs around the, the country that have multiple age groups or multiple teams in, in a certain age group. And I think that it's a shame that our, our B teams or if, if a C team exists, there's no coach that has any type of ambition that has any quality that's going to ever accept a C team position, right? But but we could argue, and this kind of trickles down to having our best coaches coach our youngest players, there's no glory in that, right? That is just pure love for the game and trying to help these kids get better. And I think at some point, even if you have the best intentions, you might start there, but at some, you're going to want to prove yourself at the highest level you can go. And I think that also is unfortunate and i wish that we would reward some of our best young coaches with our best coaches that that coach the youngest players with with probably better money right but but there's still no guarantee that's going to turn into anything but i think if you and i were at a club and and we could hand off a u10 player that we had coached for a year to to the like the next level the u the u12 coach would be so thankful for all the hard work that we did to really kind of just get the basics hammered and they understood how to play and had ideas when they were on the ball and, and made good soccer decisions, but we can go on and on about this. And so I, I, I think this is a nice segue to what Matt Crocker says about hiring a coach. And so he has said that right now he's not focused on any individuals. And this is his quote right here. It's about thinking about the behaviors that we need, the style of play that we want to promote going forward, the type of leader that we want to bring in. And then obviously that legacy piece that we want that we want to instill and have the opportunity to grow in 2026. He went on to say it would be unprofessional of me right now to talk about individual names. Greg has done a fantastic job and I intend to follow up with a number of candidates both internally within the organization and externally to begin to understand more and to assess my learning. I'll be doing that as quickly 
as I possibly can. But throughout this, he was very steadfast in we're trying to create an identity that we can build off of in 2022 to be even more, I don't know, more uh, for opponents to be more fearful of us moving forward. And I get that in theory, right? But that's another, that's a hard thing to implement in, in a lot of different ways. I just don't think it takes, it's not going to be one or two years. That that feels like a much bigger overarching theme for, for his role, which is his job in particular, right? The general manager that they hire, the coach that he hires, they're going to be in the weeds executing on his vision. So I think this hire obviously is going to be very important. Like you said in our last one, last podcast, Heath, you're going to be very curious and you're going to withhold judgment on this hire until you can kind of see the actions and decisions he's making as a leader himself. Yeah. And, and again, what I like about this is, is that this is a guy who has a a vast uh, experiences, right? And he's not coming in going, you know, I'm assuming in, in, in the interview process, he's probably had to share some thoughts and ideas of, of, okay, walk us through the next steps of where we're at now. Right. And he can come in and be like, this is how we do it. And this is the next thing. But I like his approach to saying, I've got a plan, but I've still got to assess to be able to implement the right plan or the correct plan. And and I just like that. Again, that perspective of saying, I'm going to do it as fast as I can, but I'm not coming in here with the blueprint to say, this is how we're going to fix it. And he's, he's saying, I, 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 I need to build the team to be able to do this. Right. But there are, this is a, a, a process, a linear process that we've got to get through and I just like that mentality to say, look, I, I need to understand this better as opposed to being like, oh, I know I came from this. I, of course, I know football. How different could it be? Of course, I know how to build a, a, a staff and whatever. How difficult can it be? Uh, I think he's coming in with a different approach, which I again, I, I really like for now. Having said that, you know, if, if he doesn't do something soon, we're going to stand outside of the, the offices. Jimmy, well, apparently, and, well, apparently, though, uh, that would be great. That's a good visual for us yeah. and, and great yeah. for social media, Heath. Me and We're going to send the, 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 guy, the, guy with, the guy with the sign. The guy with the sign. We have to stand outside <laughs> for a week. Yeah, we don't say anything. We just have this sign that's going to speak for us. <laughs> apparently, he's not going to take the full-time job or he's not going to be in the full-time position as sporting director until August 1st. Though Southampton apparently has given him permission to help the coaching search now. And I wonder the list of candidates. I, I felt like this was pretty quiet, the hiring process with with regard to getting Matt Crocker in particular. And I wonder how public this this pursuit of certain candidates is going to be. I assume they're going to want to keep it very close to the vest. I think that is wise for a lot of different reasons. But I hope that they're doing their due diligence because where I think Matt Crocker could have a blind spot and and he addressed it or didn't address it when he was asked this question. And again, I'm going to paraphrase this whole situation, but just to give everybody the gist, we have a very strong and vibrant Latino community in this country that loves the game, that loves both, well, I can't say if they love the U.S. men's national team, but but some do, and they also love the Mexican national team and and uh, some other Central American countries and, and just CONCACAF at large. And I love that about our country. I love that we're a melting pot. There's so many different ideas and passions and enthusiasms for the game. And I think that that is an area that needs to be addressed. That's more than just how do we sell the game? It's not a marketing approach. It's actually a real plan, I would say, to to bring these people in. And I know, and this community in, I know that you are part of Alianza uh, and you have some involvement in that space. So I would love to get your insight on how you think Matt Crocker could reach out and start to build a real bridge to, I think, the Latino community that maybe doesn't feel like there's enough representation in our in our full national team. I think our youth national teams, there are quite a few Latino players that are fantastic and, and you want to see them graduate and go on to do things. But for whatever reason, I don't feel like we see enough of that representation in our full national team. Well, the reality is, is you've got I think there I think there's over a hundred players right now being monitored by the Mexican national team that are in the US youth players, maybe even more than that uh, across all the youth teams, maybe a thousand. Um, I don't want to I don't, I don't know I don't remember the exact figure, but it's an extremely large number that FMF are monitoring, right? To say like, you know, how do we connect with them? How do we whatever? You're also in this intergenerational um, space where, you know, especially on the Alianza side, we have a lot of the players prefer English. They speak English. Maybe they speak Spanish at home, but they prefer English, right? That's the, the, the their, their native language, their first language, the language that they prefer. And then you have the parents in, in Spanish. And so 
there is there is not just like one stop shop for 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 speaking to the Hispanic community. And when we t- talk about Hispanic and Latino and how that doesn't just mean the Mexican American, that means the Argentinian in Miami. It means you know the 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 uh, Latino Caribbean in 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 the Northeast or wherever they are. It's it is it's it's a lot of work. Uh, one from the player development side and connecting with those those communities, but also from from the fandom side, right? Um, and it's not as easy as as you know a, a battle between recruiting players. I don't think that's 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 what it what it is. I think it is about how you speak to them. If you look at the uh, marketing materials now of U.S. soccer, even going into the World Cup, right? O- uh, only forward Solo Palante, like that was purposeful, right? It was intentional. To say we are a, a multilingual, multicultural nation, and we need to start speaking in a way and connecting in a way with communities that are different than perhaps we did in the past. And I think there's a lot of steps to that, but tactically, I'll leave that to him of how they're going to solve or how they're going to go about that. Because I think that's not just on field; that's off field as well. And how your 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 what you're always on strategy is in connecting with communities. Yeah, and I think communication is going to be key, and, and also opportunity. And I hope that. In some ways, that that gets part of the interview process. If we're looking at a coach, that it shouldn't just be someone with a British accent <laughs> to kind of fall into that. I know that we're 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 all talking about bigger, bigger names uh, with Jose Mourinho and you know the 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 big dance uh, or or hope that maybe Pep Guardiola might be interested. If if, if he wins the treble this year with Man City, what else does he have left to prove with those guys? You know, may, maybe Nothing. it's time for him to take on a national team. You know, so. So you know you have all these names that are being bandied about, and and uh, but you hope that that it's a nice full process, and and it seems like that's going to be the case, but I guess we won't know until we know. But exciting, exciting times. Now there's another thing that I don't think necessarily falls under the purview of Matt Crocker, but given his experience and where he's coming from, the cup competitions are big, and, and rightfully so over in England, and I don't think that the Open Cup, and we've talked about this before, but I want to hammer it again. This is the tournament, the U.S. Open Cup, which is the oldest competition in this country. So we have history. It's been around for over 100 years. It's a concept that should be, frankly, easy for the casual fan to understand because it's just March Madness, right? And everybody understands March Madness. you got the small clubs going against the big dogs. There's so many great narratives here. And yet, it's hard to find sometimes on TV. It's hard to know what the storylines are. It's not getting the coverage that it deserves. And that bums me out because I think it's such an incredible gateway drug that, that uh, what's the quote, uh, rising tides lift all boats. I know that they're MLS because it's not a competition that they necessarily run, that they're, they're a part of. I could see them being a little reluctant to maybe give up more control or more slice of the pie or any kind of broadcast stuff behind the scenes or, or extra money to, to a different competition. But, but I think that if I think MLS would benefit from more love for the open cup. And so it feels a little bit short-sighted that, that it's just, it isn't seen. And we've only had so far the open cup, two upsets. We had Atlanta United lose last night to Memphis nine Oh one and San Jose earthquakes lost to Monterey Bay. The fun fact about that Monterey Bay is coached by Frank Yallop a former Quakes coach and former Quakes player, Ramiro Corrales. So that was pretty cool. And that was their first big win in, in their club's history. I mean, they've obviously had some success in the USL championship. This is their second year ever, but uh, to beat the Quakes is a pretty big deal. But I wanted to get your thoughts on, on just the Open Cup overall and, and where you think we could build this in a more meaningful way. Ultimately, I think they need to have kind of like a college game day kind of atmosphere where you're going to these maybe smaller markets, you're giving that type of love, that type of coverage, you're building the excitement so that people really understand how big of a deal this competition is. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, again, I'm, I, 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 you know, U.S. soccer was looking for a production partner, somebody to cover production costs to get this off the ground. Obviously, we saw last year on ESPN, they did a whip around show of, of trying to give you as much as possible as in, in the later in the Yeah, later I want matches, that to continue. Games. I'm trying to figure out how to do that uh, in the earlier rounds, right? Because this is the rounds that I'm most excited because I see like my local teams around before I play against my other local teams that are very regional semi-pro part-time playing against uh, or part-time playing against a semi-pro team. Then a semi-pro team playing against a pro team. Exactly. A pro team playing against a, a higher level pro team. And 
while the upset while the upsets mean something to me on a national level within my within my own sort of communities and where I come from that means the world to me to see these things happen right and and it means the world to me to see things come into these communities especially for these away games and i remember even playing in the cup in in, in germany you went to these really small old where it's like you know like the rail around the field type of thing where you couldn't go past the rail and it's just like there's no like bleacher and you're you're it's full of people because that's their big game for the year you're coming in in a cup match and generally you win but you're having to go away from home and it changes the dynamic of things it makes teams play a lot better against you and all of that and it just brings this excitement to it as a player but at the same time as a fan it's a really cool one two or three game uh experience i, I don't know if it's a format change uh jimmy that w- would make it if it was more of like a, a a group play throughout throughout a period of time where you have those exit from certain things and or how it all sort of played out um but i would love to see just more interaction at the local regional local state and regional level to create the future of 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 those fan bases and again that requires buy-in from everybody but i like the idea of that yeah I, it's interesting and and i want to give a shout out to the CBS Sports Galasso Network, the Galasso Channel, they have picked up three games in this previous round, and it looks like they're going to continue to do that, and are giving real coverage and respectful coverage and meaningful coverage of this tournament. And uh, that makes me proud to be a part of this whole thing because this competition means a lot to me. I won it in 2004, so maybe I'm a little bit biased. It was the year that uh, they renamed the tournament to have Lamar Hunt, so it's the Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup. And... Uh, we won it and Lamar Hunt owned us and he came down and gave me a big fat hug, you know, and I thought that was a really cool mm-hmm. moment in my career to to have reached that point, to be in that position where I could win a competition and it mattered to me. And when I say and I talk about the trophies that I've won in this in my in my career, the Open Cup's right there. It's 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 a trophy. It I we dedicated and we sacrificed and and it was something that mattered. And I think it's also a competition and we see a lot of teams we'll, we'll just use England right now in the FA Cup where they use that competition as a springboard for other things. And sometimes you need to go into those cup competitions to find your confidence. I'll use Sporting Kansas City as an example, who are terrible this year and have been an MLS. But they go into this competition, and then last night they win 3-0. Alan Polito, who hasn't scored a goal since he had a significant injury, has hit the back of the net. What is that going to do for him? So you have all these... Which, by the way, is almost... For for everyone's reference, just to give a context, I mean, it's almost two years... Uh, for a player of his quality since he scored, right? It's a big deal. Yeah. Um, it is. It, it's a really big deal. So you have those storylines. Uh, you have you have the storyline for me where these big dogs, these MLS teams, come in and they should be the favorites on paper. And as you know, Heath, these games are difficult. These these players are up for it. This is their one of their biggest games of the season when they're taking you, you on. And a lot of teams, MLS teams, at least historically, I think, until like maybe the semifinals, are kind of casual about how they approach it. Oh, they, they have a built-in excuse. I liken it to when European teams come over here in the summer and play friendlies against MLS teams. It's like, oh, well, it's the summer. It's preseason. If we lose, we lose, whatever. And, and MLS teams are like, ah, oh, well, we're playing our younger players and we don't want anybody to get hurt, you know? And But I want it to matter more than that. And I see Jack making fun of me that I won it in 04, 1904. <laughs> Competition wasn't around. It wasn't around in 1904, Jack. So suck it on that. All right, we're going to take our second and last break of In Soccer We Trust. When we come back, we'll talk about some big matchups around the world. And any questions you want to ask us in the comments, hit us up right after this. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to In Soccer We Trust. If you're like us, then you're a fan of the beautiful game everywhere, including the European game. So make sure to check out another great pod in the CBS Sports Podcast family, the House of Champions, which Heath is apparently on pretty regularly now. I don't know if you're just filling in with our friends Ian, Paul Joy, Fabrizio Romano. Nigel Rio Coker, Michael LaHood, James Benj, Jonathan Johnson. They're unpacking the biggest games and the storylines from the top five leagues and the greatest competition on earth, the Champions League and beyond. The House of Champions has you covered. So download and subscribe to the House of Champions podcast anywhere you find this one, suckers. All right, I'm Jimmy Conrad alongside Hollywood Heath Pierce. No Charlie Davies today because he is frolicking around England with Alexis Guerreros and Thierry Henry, apparently. <coughs> oh my God, the cough. Maybe because I'm a little bit jealous there, Heath. Yeah. But... um. I wanted to ask you this because because I didn't put a button on that up Open Cup competition. I wanted to, to know who you thought was going to win. I went with Sporting Kansas City because I want to see my former club have something to be happy about this season. It's not looking good domestically in the MLS. So what did you think? Uh, who do you think is going to win it this year? Oh, man. Uh, by the way, uh, don't we have some sort of uh, video to run of you, Jimmy, with your prediction? Um, no, because- we don't. 
no, no we don't. We but don't. we did tweet okay. it out. Uh, me okay. going on Morning That's Footy good. and and also on Box to Box. Another well, when I saw the when I when I saw the when I when I saw the cut of it, it sounded like Jimmy hedging in the beginning, and then you were forced to make a decision in the end. It sounded like maybe this team, maybe that team. Is well, that where, I, I, that's, that's where things started. That's where things started. I'll, I'll uh, yes, I'll raise my hand and say that I had gone with the teams in MLS that have the depth, that have the talent to win this competition, and are the ones that actually take it seriously, right? Sporting Kansas City and Peter Vermes, they make it a point like this competition matters. It's a trophy like any other trophy that we're competing for. And we need to approach it the same way. Chicago Fire have been doing it from year one when they won it in 98. They won the double in their first ever year of existence. That had Jesse Marsh on it, Chris Armis, Demarcus Beasley, Carlos Buchanan. Like they had a ton of guys. And so you can see that those clubs that those guys were a part of. I know, I think the Red Bulls under Jesse Marsh, when Mike Rella was on the show today talking about how Jesse Marsh wanted to win this competition, it was a point of emphasis for him. So Seattle Sounders obviously have a nice track record here. So I just kind of threw my name in the hat with a couple of these clubs that I know will take it serious. Now the Seattle Sounders had to outlast the San Diego loyal last night. A crazy game between MLS and USL mm-hmm. championship team. Landon Donovan uh, is the coach of the San Diego loyal. It was three, three after 90 minutes, Heath, and it ended five, four after extra time. There was three goals in extra time. Freddie Montero got a penalty real late on to, to seal that deal. But uh, shout out to San Diego loyal who were down two zero and found their way back into the game and almost stole that. But um, yeah, yeah, I, I, mean, I, so I got, yes, I did hedge. And then I just, I, I was, I'm trying to will it into existence because I want the fans of, of sporting Kansas city to feel good again. It's been a long time since they won a trophy or had any type of success. Yeah. And that, that was their first win of the competitive win of that the too. year and <laughs> uh, anything. So it's a, it's a big moment. Hopefully they, they can feed off that. I mean, in terms of, it's hard for me to not go with like your, your open cup giants, like, like Seattle Sounders who claw their way out of that and yeah, can find right. some rhythm of momentum. Right. Obviously it's an interesting year um, because of just how busy these calendars are and schedules. Teams are going to have to prioritize who they play. When do you go, do you go league? How do you manage leagues cup? Yeah. If you're an MLS team, right? Uh, open cup, which I know is a, a big deal for a lot of clubs and what they want to be able to, to get out of it. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go with uh, actually, I like that. No, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to say Seattle. <laughs> you I'm, can talk I'm about Sac, say Sac Republic. They got to the final last year to lose to Orlando yeah. City. You know. Yeah, and they 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 beat Oakland Roots uh, in, in yeah, their last night. match, and and um, but I, I'm I'm thinking more of like a distressed team, Jimmy. So somebody that I think is going to look at this with how much they've got going on, they're going to look at this as like a how do we show we made progress as a team, but also won something this year, like a Portland Timbers, who who I think. Are gonna con- it's going to be a long season for them. So I think they could be uh, something worthwhile in this competition. I look at Miami also sneaking out. DeAndre Yedlin with an own goal uh, and then only yeah, uh, yeah. should have gone out. They score one in, in whatever minute they what end about, up running what about, um, what about St. Louis? Obviously, they're lighting up MLS. I well, wonder they smashed, how they're going to approach they this. Smash? They smashed somebody uh, yesterday too. Who was it? They beat um, uh, Union Omaha 5-1. Yeah, 5-1. Um they could too, but I I just feel like again it's it's uh, do they have the depth to be able to continue to grind uh, across all competitions? Maybe uh, maybe not, but I I do not to say teams devalue it, but you get into a point of a season where you've got to sort of hedge and say you know what this is the one this is the motivator this is either a season changer for us or something like that. Not to say you can't have a clean sweep because I think you know you've got you've got plenty of big clubs in here that could that could win win the league and and win the open cup um all in succession and win league's cup uh for that matter so yeah uh, but a I, there's a lot to balance i'm gonna no, say, I, I'm, gonna say I I'm gonna say portland. i'm gonna go with portland okay rose city till heath dies in this particular mm-hmm. one okay so we had a question i want to come back to it and i know that i promised a, a little chip talk as well in terms of player development that i think could be of interest to to everybody listening and that's why i'm bringing it up but uh with regard to the first question what do you think Matt Crocker has to do to try to recruit a Fuller and Balogun? Now, obviously, Balogun turned down the opportunity to go in, didn't get called into the full team when thought maybe he should, given how well he'd been playing for Rantz in, in uh, Liga, even though he has cooled off a little bit since all that happened. Mm-hmm. Gareth Southgate's been pretty mum about it. He got called into the U21s, Balogun, just to give everybody some context. He turned that down, and then all of a sudden he ended up in the same city as the U.S. Uh, in our games, in the Nations League games. And 
at that point, it felt like there was some momentum to get him in. It looks like Anthony Hudson and his coaching staff in U.S. soccer have had conversations with him. I wonder if Balogun did that and went to Orlando just to see how England would respond to that move. I think it was less about, now in hindsight, it, it felt more strategic in that way instead of him just saying, you know what? You know, F those guys over in England. I'm going to go with the U.S. at this point. And so I wonder. I don't know if Matt Crocker is going to be the guy, but obviously he would be coming off as a proper hero if he could come in and get Balogun to, to join in. Now, if I'm Balogun, I want to see who the coach is first before I commit anything. So, so I wonder how long this kind of saga is going to last. But uh, do you think that Matt Crocker is going to pass on that responsibility to somebody else? Or do you think that uh, we're going to start seeing some Matt Crocker texts to Balogun here pretty soon? Yeah, I think we we will. I mean, that's going to be that's going to be part of it is nurturing that group until you have a GM sort of set up to facilitate more always on conversations with the players and coach that can can do that. But I think a lot of it's going to come down to that coach, right? If he's sitting back, he's looking at it. I mean, in all in all fairness, like Ivan Tony has been in fantastic form uh, continuing to this day in terms of his numbers within the England uh, within the within the Premier League at 19 goals in 31 matches is pretty spectacular and tough to argue, right? If you're, if you're comparing apples to apples, between he should the bet on quality himself, and Ivan Tony. <laughs> <laughs> That's a yeah. Inside joke. To be, Ivan Tony's got to be a, fair. Thing. To be fair. That is he's, he's playing with a real like left off the roster chip on his shoulder right now. And I could see that. And that's costing Balogun. But like, I think it's just going to come down to the coach and, and, and sort of how that all plays out in terms of the ambition. It's also going to come down to timelines for Balogun. Like the longer Balogun waits, I don't know. Maybe that changes his status. Maybe he gets his call up and 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 goes on and proves himself. But I still think he's got he still has one more step, like leave France, prove himself in England before I think England's gonna take him serious at that level or be at a bigger club right somewhere else, whether right. it's in England or not, to 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 get that that respect that that I think he he feels he deserves. All right, let's go back and do some more Matt Crocker stuff. I, I feel like we're all over the place in this podcast, but that's part of our charm. And uh, it gets even more all over the place when Charlie's here. So we're missing you right now, Chuck. When I think about this conversation that I had with uh, our pal Chip, it was we were walking through New York City yesterday following the, the City-Arsenal game. And it was about player development and this vertical integration and, and developing players. And how Matt Crocker obviously has a lot of experience in this space. And we got into the part of the conversation about Germany not having a number nine. And why they struggled. And... and how do they solve that problem? And are we getting, and, and so I guess I want to see how Matt Crocker helps try to solve that particular problem where we have a lot of wingers in our particular team and our national team. Our number nine is an area where yes, we have, it's not a glaring hole. We have guys that can do it, but there aren't any out and out options. And are we not as a country? And, and I use Germany as an example in this conversation because though they have had tremendous success at the international level, they are not creating number nines. And they're a country that you think would be on top of that. And they would be monitoring that. And, and I wonder how they're trying to solve it. But then how using them or looking through the lens of what they're trying to do, how do we solve that? And, and that kind of communication, which gets back to this, Heath, and I wanted to get your thoughts and anybody else that wants to chime in again, hit us up on Twitter, ISWTPod or in the comments right now on the YouTubes. That means that you have to have this scouting and this, this coaching network that you trust to identify talent, to say, hey, listen, we need a number nine. We need maybe two number nines because there seems to be a nice quiet shift back to potentially a two-striker system that, that can help us kind of connect the dots to everything else that we've already created. And, and not a Jesus Ferrer who's a tweener, right? Even Ricardo Pepe feels like a bit of a tweener at times. Josh Sargent, definitely a tweener. So who is that out-and-out out number nine? And because maybe there's been a shift to trying to find these, these crafty, athletic guys that can play multiple positions, we've lost out on developing somebody that has a skill set, but ah, that's not who we're looking at right now. And so all of a sudden, they fall through the cracks. And, and now we maybe miss out on a really potentially good player that could help not only our national team, but, you know, the, the domestic game or whatever mm -hmm. it may be. How do you solve that problem? Because that feels like a point of emphasis. Like the guy has to come in, Matt Crocker, and say, hey, listen, scouts, I don't know who you are, where you're at, or coaches that we trust. We got to start identifying this player. Do you think it's as simple as that? Um, no, because I think that's, a, that's also a physical profile, right? You're not going to have a five foot seven 
traditional number nine. It's just not going to happen. You you'll get a you'll get a, a Michael Owen, but Michael Owen needs to run off of somebody and play off of somebody, right? I think Ricardo oh, Pepe is 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 a, is a number is a number nine. I think Darren Yappy is a number nine, but it's also because of the the profile that he is that he's a number nine, right? He is he's got pace. He's got, but he's got size and he's got physical stature that he can he can occupy the center backs. He can hold. He has hold up play. He's got a great first touch, and and he's young. That's a pathway for a future number nine. Um, but again, a future number nine, a traditional number nine that plays in a single striker system is very different than a two striker system in terms of what that player's attributes have to be. Right, a striker that can play in a two striker system. We had plenty of those in the past, right? If you go from Brian Ching to Connor Casey to uh, Josie Altidore to these Brian guys McBride. that that have somebody working off of them all the time and occupying that space, and and you build a little bit of that rhythm, and they bring certain things, and another striker brings certain things. But a single striker system requires them to be a little bit more mobile, be able to run the channels, to have some hold up play. But because you're playing with a single striker, you're adding a player to your midfield, right? And when you're adding a player to your midfield you're eliminating space for a single striker to play a little bit more traditionally where it's a lot of balls into the feet, scrapping, hold up play coming up underneath. You're, it's a different system of play. So I think the two striker versus one striker system changes the profile of uh, personally of what a, yeah, a of what a striker, uh, what a number nine needs to have um, in their toolbox to be, to be effective. But we have a player like a Darren Yappy that is a true uh, nine that could be a single nine, could be a double nine in terms of the player he's becoming. I think Ricardo, Ricardo Pepe could be a single nine or a double nine. Um, and and then you have a little bit more of a, a four three three type of. Uh, I think we have uh, second strikers. Or, yeah, I think yeah. we have plenty of second striker options. I think Ricardo Pepe is probably the closest we have. I think Darren Yappy's a great shout. I just wonder if you bring in a coach now i'm a i'm a i'm a coach or i'm a guy that thinks that a coach should only have one world cup cycle and they have to move on which makes the emphasis from the sporting director that much more important because he's the one that has to continue he or she's the one that has to continue that theme like this is what we're trying to do this is what we're trying to accomplish and we're hiring people that also see it the same way knowing that they're not going to be a part of it for the duration right they're only here for 4 years or at least from a coaching perspective and so i don't know how much control I want to hand off, I guess, a, a group of players that, that a coach can mold and build in their in their vision of that particular group and that World's Cup cycle. But ultimately, there still needs to be a bigger plan of what we're trying to do as a country. And I think that's hard in this country because of all how big we are. And it's a lot easier, I think, to get everybody mm -hmm. on the same page when you know we, we try to copy the Belgians of the world and, and the Germanys of the world. It's I think it's a lot easier to get everybody rowing the same boat when you have a country that's that much smaller than ours, which I think is just a little bit harder to get everybody thinking the same way. I mean, you can just look at our youth youth game to see how many acronyms we have for all different types of leagues and who, who, basically fighting for power and money. And sometimes I think player development comes uh, a much distant uh, third or fourth in that regard. But uh, anyway, we could go I, we could go on and on and on and on about this. Let's get into our weekend matchup what's 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 the big matchup that you're looking for for to the most heath this weekend i'll go first because the game's going on right now and it's valencia taking on real valladolid valencia are in the relegation zone they're one of spain's biggest clubs they have uh they've won i don't know multiple la liga titles i think six or seven in their in their history they're considered the third biggest club even above atletico madrid in mm -hmm. In Spain, they were the last team outside of the big three, Atleti, Real Madrid, and Barcelona, to win the league title. That was back in 2003-2004. They got to back-to-back -back Champions League finals in 2000-2001. I mean, this is a team with a rich history. And they're on the precipice of getting relegated for the first time in 36 years. They're currently down today to Real, Real Valladolid 1-0. We'll see Yunus Musa starting in this one. And that's the tie-in, I guess, for me. But they play Cadiz this weekend as well. Valladolid and Cadiz are just barely above them. Now, they need these points. They need to get these wins. I think it would be really disappointing to see Valencia uh, get relegated, but maybe that's what they need to kind of shake it up because they have an owner that uh, seems to not care that much. So, so, And that's happening to a lot of clubs around the world. But um, that's the game. Those are the games, I guess, I'll be watching as it pertains to Yunus Musa and, and uh, the U.S. men's national team. Uh, what's the game for you that you're looking at the most this weekend? Uh, Leeds Bournemouth. That's the big one for me. Um, the other one, and for obvious reasons, we've talked about it a million times, you know, why Leeds and Bournemouth is a massive game. They're both looking to survive. Bournemouth are a little bit safer than, than Leeds. Leeds need points. Um, but the other one, which we didn't mention last week in terms of big moments is, um, gank finished the league in first place in the Belgian league with Mark McKenzie. And now they have the playoff system where they play everybody two times. And the way that you go into that with your same points, um, 
And so they are tied on points with the second place team. So it's going to be a scrap. They have a game on Sunday against uh, Club Bruges, which will not be an easy game. And it's a it's mm-hmm. a weird one where you have some overperformers uh, and some underperformers all in the same group. It's going to be a really hard uh, six games for for Mark McKenzie and Gank, but something that I think you'll learn a ton from whether they end up uh, winning the trophy or not. All right. Well, you heard from me and Heath, and maybe one day you'll hear from Charlie Davies. I don't know. We'll <laughs> see if he shows up for Monday's show. So that is the end of today's in soccer. We trust on behalf of producer Des, producer Alex, I guess Charlie Davies, Hollywood Heath Pierce, and myself, Cream Cheese, Conradinho Conrad. Thank you for your love and support of the show. Have a great weekend, and we cannot wait to see you next week. Later.